Hello. What do ABBA, Hadrian's Wall and Grecian urns have in common? They are all part of the world's heritage. Steve Slack, writer and heritage interpretation consultant, joins me in this first episode of 2021 to talk about creativity and collaboration behind the scenes in the museum world. Welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast, exploring creativity in all its diverse forms. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm an author and podcaster. So today I started my conversation with Steve Slack by asking him what is heritage and how he got into the heritage sector. I mean, what is heritage? That's a, a decent question to start with. I often feel like sometimes locking a few heritage studies professors in a room for a week and seeing what they come up with. What is heritage? Um, we talk about our own personal heritage. Um, uh, what is your heritage, young May? Um, which uh, is sometimes in the last 20 years or so been a way of, of asking someone with a different skin colour, oh God, I don't really know anything about you. Um, but also, we, we talk about our personal heritage, about our intangible heritage, you know, what is the heritage of a nation? But I'm particularly concerned with cultural heritage, the heritage that we see around us that's quite tangible. And within what we now call the heritage sector, that can mean collecting institutions like museums and archives and libraries. Um, it might mean outdoor heritage, like an English heritage or a national trust site, um, an archaeological remain. It might mean some industrial heritage, a piece of uh, machinery, some transport heritage, some military heritage, um, these various branches of heritage. But we kind of sum them all up really as anything that might have a brown sign on the motorway that might divert you to go and uh, and spend some time in. But um, anywhere really with a cafe and a, and a bookshop that you want to go and look at something that might have something from the past or the present that's then been brought to life in a way that visitors want to come and see. So the heritage sector, I think of it very much as where visitors go to experience heritage. That's kind of what I, what I think of it. And how I got into it? Um, well, I volunteered when I was a teenager at my local National Trust property, which was a glorious grand country house. And I was one of the room stewards, you know, those people who are given the binder of, of the binder of secrets that they have to somehow try and find a way of imparting to visitors. Um, and I just loved it. I was mostly surrounded by people who'd retired and wanted something interesting to do on a Tuesday afternoon. And um, there was me, a 17 year old, wanting to do the same. <laughs> um, but ever since then, really, I've just wanted to, I've been excited by uh, the world of cultural heritage around us and, and how we bring that alive for visitors. So as a fresh-faced, young um, um, history geek, I suppose, heritage geek, um, um, you 
your first encounter was in a in a beautiful national trust property um how how does one then um i'm just thinking of our listeners some of whom may be may find themselves kind of think oh actually that's interesting how so how do i take that further how do i get into actually becoming a professional heritage person person heritage person <laughs> um well there's um it's something that the heritage sector has been grappling with in the last decade or so really what are the entry routes into it I mean, historically, it was if you were rich enough to not have to get a proper job, um, and then you would just give up your time to work for a tidy salary, doing something worthwhile yet interesting. Um, that, of course, is not very sustainable as an industry. Um, and given the intense professionalization of the museum and heritage sector in the last few years, the general routes in are um, by you can study heritage studies at university history or those sorts of things um, you might do a uh, if you've done a, a regular arts or sciences undergraduate degree you might do a master's in museum studies i have not but maybe a dozen or so universities offer museum and heritage studies but a lot of people just get in through volunteering through finding a place near them that interests them by picking up some knowledge and some skills and uh, spending some time at the coalface. The majority of people, me included, have started their heritage careers by selling tickets and working in the gift shop and uh, gradually being allowed to start to um, give some guided tours or uh, to um, write something small uh, and make it take a small step into connecting up the visitors who come through the door and the heritage that we have on display and creating a connection between the two. I could be really small, as small as welcome to the site, good morning, would you like to come in? All the way up to writing a full exhibition uh, full of text and sticking it all on the wall. Um, uh, the ways into it, there's no, there's no set route into it. Um, and I think it's becoming slightly more streamlined now, but it's um, yeah, it's quite a, quite a strange one. My personal way in was um, I was skint at university. I needed some money. And uh, like all students do, you get a, a job in between your studies. And I ended up at the Imperial War Museum uh, on the ticket desk. And um, I gradually, after university, managed to get myself um, through uh, some hard work and a modest amount of begging got myself a, a, an admin job behind the scenes in the education department and from there I was able to step 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 slowly. I, I love that story because I think sometimes um, we look at people who've achieved um, you know the, 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 the their dream career um, and we think oh they just plopped into that um, and I've known you for um, many years, um, 10 to 15 years, um, which will be telling us how old we are. <laughs> um, but, you know, over the time, your your role has evolved and you've become more and more embedded in the heritage sector um, and you've become an expert um, in your field and well known in, in the sector. Um, but before we get there, um, I, it would be lovely to hear some of your stories. Um, I think you've, you've worked at different museums um, in, in different um, uh, places in the world. Um, and so, it's, but, but before we get there, sorry, I'm sort of jumping about a, a bit. But um, what was your what was your degree? Very exciting, young heritage is very exciting, young base. <laughs> so I can understand why you want to. You know. 
So, so um, what was your degree? My degree is in theology and religious studies, um, which has nothing to do with what I do at the moment. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, I, did, I didn't, um, um, I didn't set out to get where I am now. You know what I mean? I didn't take a degree in theology thinking, well, I want to write labels in museums. <laughs> I think I took that because I was interested in the subject um, and it actually set me up quite well in terms of a critical thinking um, and uh, it's also a degree in debate and strong conversation. So that uh, set me up quite well, I think. Um, but I was what I, uh, what I really, when I ended up working in the interpretation team at the British Museum, what was so interesting of the half a dozen of us was that we had completely different ways into it. One was an Egyptologist, professional Egyptologist. Uh, one had worked uh, for uh, BBC Radio. One had been a book editor in the past. Somebody else had been a manager in a museum. Um, somebody had come from architectural history. I'd come from working on exhibitions and um, my background was in um, religion. And so together, we made this brilliant team of people with different backgrounds and uh, areas of interest and expertise. And what's so, what makes interpretation work so much fun is that it's about having conversations, about talking it all through. And because we had all these different um, backgrounds and uh, perspectives from radio, from publishing, from exhibitions, from education, from Egypt, we could uh, throw together some really interesting ideas. And that's, so it doesn't really matter what your, what any of our roots into it were, but our, our diversity and our vibrance made it, made it so much more interesting. That sounds really exciting in terms of, you know, creative collaboration. And um, we'll come back to, to collaborative working in, in a bit, but just to stick a little a bit with, with your personal um, journey. Um, uh, and in terms of the first question I asked around um, where you've worked, um, the different countries you've worked, the different kinds of heritage that, that, that uh, your career has taken you um, through. Um, could you just give us some, some sort of um, stories and, and examples? So I um, I cut my teeth at the Imperial War Museum, working on um, two exhibitions about uh, genocide and ethnic violence, which obviously were that jolly, but were really important, really, really powerful things to work on. And um, for me, what stands out most from then is working with survivors. Um, this was uh, this we, we had an event to mark um, ten years since the Rwandan genocide which of course now is many years ago. Um, yet we were also working with Holocaust, oh, so I'm working with survivors of that, yet also working with Holocaust survivors who at the time were in their 70s and 80s. And some of those experiences really do stick in my memory, partially because of the the intensity and the, um, the dynamic that you have trying to do a professional job whilst working with someone's personal memory, but also, Strangely, some of the great humour that came out of it, um, the the conversations and the um, the moments of utter delight that come from that were, were really rewarding. Um, I went to work for the British Museum for a while. Um, I worked in the States briefly on a, a Cold War museum in California. Um, and I've been a freelancer since uh, 2008. Um, and... Uh, 
it's been a joy to work on, to bounce between different projects. I'm not a subject specialist. I'm not an Egyptologist or a historian or an art historian or a scientist. And it's quite fun to bounce between different subjects. In fact, not being a specialist is really important because it helps me to play the role of the audience, to be the audience advocate in the, the main exhibition making process. Yeah. I, I went to see um, the Holocaust exhibition at the Imperial War Museum and um, I was so utterly um, absorbed, fascinated, horrified, moved. We were there for five hours and we didn't even realise that the time had passed. Um, it, and and I'd, I'd love your, your thoughts on this because for me as a visitor, knowing nothing about the background of how um, museums and exhibitions are put together, um, what I realised when I reflect back on it was that it, the actual physical experience of being in the museum and following through the exhibition was actually um, added to the experience of, it wasn't just reading the little cards or listening mm -hmm. to the audio of people talking, um, but it was the sense that it opened, you, you walk in and it's quite light and airy and you're, you get a sense of what it was like in the 1930s um, in these places where uh, the, the Jewish people lived in the ghetto. But it was actually, you know, there's this lovely story of the two little girls who were friends and, they, and you, you could see their letters. Um, and it was, there was a lightness in it. And as you progress through the exhibition, uh, it got darker and darker and more and more intense. And there was this moment um, when you walk through the cattle truck and it then completely changes. And it was almost like, you know, of course, we, we cannot experience what it was like for those people who lived through it, but it gave us a hint and a flavour of the horror of it. And that actually the cattle truck was the transition, the major transition for these people who were then transported to Auschwitz and the other um, camps. Um, and we walked through it um, and suddenly we came out the other side and that was a little mini journey for us. Um, and everything was gray. And there was a room that was utterly gray that kind of felt this ashen feel. Um, and there were these um, boxes, glass cases full of shoes and spectacles. And of course I wear spectacles and I'm very uh, short-sighted without them. And that really just kind of you know, it was like it was a physical reaction of, of horror and shiver. And, and I didn't shiver, but it was that, that sort of cold, your blood turns cold. Oh. Um, and, and, you know, that I suppose is a way of interpreting heritage because you're actually interpreting the physicality. It's not just, uh, as you, you lightly said, you know, writing the little cards. Um, perhaps you could, you could just expand on that and, and yeah. tell us a bit more of the, the well, background. Thank you for sharing your experience of it. I, I should say I can take no credit for it because I joined the team after that that had all been designed and installed. Um, but the challenge that we faced on that exhibition and on others is how do you take something as as so impactful as a genocide and try and tell a story about it in a museum? Well, you can do it if you've got a physical space that is a, a, a remembrance site. Um, a lot of the former camps in um, in Europe you can go and visit and they have the space that you can stand in which is very poignant. You can do it, uh, you can write a book about it, you can make a, a film about it and there have been plenty. But what we sought to do uh, at the museum there was to take some of the physical remnants of that historical event and to use them as storytelling devices. And given the experience that you've just described, which is very similar to many people, seeing 
um, those personal uh, individual items, um, they can be really great hooks for storytelling. The challenge of telling that story of how so what happened to so many people is so huge that you couldn't tell all of their stories. Sometimes just focusing in on one and one pair of spectacles, one shaving brush, one shoe, um, can make the the scale and the story of something that is so huge all the more personal. And that's something that we try to do in uh, in all of our interpretation. Um, whether it's about something as dark as that exhibition, or in fact whether it's something joyous, um, if, I, if we can make interpretation uh, relevant and have a, a direct appeal to the visitor who's standing in front of it, then um, then we've succeeded because we've created a connection, a connection between heritage, which could be something historical, maybe from the last within the last hundred years, maybe from thousands of years ago. I can create a way into that story using a physical object and then an interpretive device, in this case, a museum label or an audio guide, then that's my job done. So coming up with the ways in which we create those links is the process of, of part of the process of heritage interpretation. So you've um, worked in the heritage sector now for 20 years and you've gathered all that experience, um, uh, as we touched on, in different parts of the world and different exhibitions. And, and being a generalist, um, you've had a wide experience and you've gathered that into your book, Interpreting Heritage. Um, I guess the clue is in the title, <laughs> Interpreting Heritage. Um, perhaps you could share some of your um, case studies from there um, around um you know some uh, how, how certain heritage is, is interpreted, and and I guess I'd I'd love you to tell the story of of the Abba Museum just as a change of gear and a change of uh, rhythm from from the rather serious uh, lighten lighten it up a bit. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, the the book draws together um, some of my thoughts on uh, how interpretation is delivered across uh, various different sites, and. Um, it talked in part about interpretation in theory. So um, some of the models, if you like, that, that, uh, that, and the planning tools that we use for creating heritage interpretation, um, thinking about why we are in her uh, interpreting, who it's for, um, thinking about what we want to get across to visitors and ultimately how we're going to deliver it. But that could be quite dry. So yes, the book's got quite a few case studies in of different examples of, um, of how interpretation gets manifested. The ABBA one, um, it's lovely actually, it's an exhibition called Super Troopers, uh, and it was made by the ABBA Museum in Sweden, and it's on tour around the world. Um, it's been curtailed in 2020 and 2021 for obvious reasons, but um, I'm sure it will be back again. It's an experience rather than necessarily a traditional museum. Um, and the idea is that visitors walk through a series of scenes in the uh, the life and experience of the band ABBA, and each one has got some objects in it. But you're you're guided through these scenes, which have been delivered in such a beautiful theatrical way. So the first room you walk into, for example, is not uh, a recording studio. It's not uh, um, uh, some grand musical event. It is a bedroom, a hotel room in Brighton, the night that ABBA have just won the Eurovision Song Contest. And the band have come back, they've had a quick party, and then they've gone out again. So there's some 
maybe there's some um, a bottle of champagne open on the side and there's some music playing and the guitar is in a display case in the middle of the bed the audio plays and um you're shown around by the by the, the by the guide so the song plays and then the audio kicks in coming out of the speakers built into the room and it's jarvis cocker talking to you <laughs> about the history of abba it's brilliant you go to, you, at some point they open i don't want to ruin the surprise but at some point they, you know they open the um the wardrobe doors and as a group you all disappear through a bit like alice in wonderland um, and you you go to a a, a a Swedish woodland glade where Abba playing a gig. Uh, you do go to a recording studio, and I, I won't ruin the surprise. There's, some, there's a glorious ending to it, um, but it's fully immersive and it is absolutely packed with joy. It's a brilliant exhibition to a feel-good exhibition to go to. Now you might not think it when you're going through it, but you're learning quite a bit. You're taking lots of information in, but you're doing it in such a fun and engaged way. It's a brilliant example of someone who's thought about what they want to get across. They've thought about who their audience is, uh, and then they've come up with a, a, their whole range of interpretive devices they want to to, to use. And it's a good example of the, of the range of different things you can use. So we think of museums as just putting like a label next to an object, um, but there's so much more that we can do. And the book seeks to highlight some of those. You know, different things you can see when you go to a museum. I don't know, young man, what do you like? When you go to a museum, what kind of intrigues you or what gets you switched on? That's a really good question. And I think from childhood, I um, I have a, I still have a little bit of a reluctance of going to museums because it is, um, my memory of it is being dragged through all these kind of objects um, don't touch. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, you're, you're supposed to just read the label um, and the label. Um, and I remember when I first met you, how can this chap make a living writing little labels? <laughs> um, uh, but uh, it's fantastic to hear about. Actually, you know, of, of course, it's it's a lot more than that. Um, I, I love um, interaction. I, I love being engaged. I love um, being intrigued. Um, and I love seeing uh, these objects, uh, but also being uh, ha having a story, um, being told the story, and to put it in the context of much uh, a much bigger um, uh, sort of range of history. So it's not just an object, uh, which doesn't really mean anything, but it's so it's in the context. Um, so I'd, I'd love to ask you about. Um, so you know, um, I'm thinking. Okay, here's an object. Um, uh, I'm, and as an English grad, of course, owed to a Grecian urn, the Keats poem. Here's a Grecian urn. It's a pot. And this is, I suppose, um, this is where my childhood kicks in. It's like, oh, my God, I'm just going to look at pots again. Um, <laughs> how tedious. I don't want to go to that. Um, so how might you interpret um, a, a Grecian urn? Um, yeah. I guess, presumably, it depends on the context. It depends on um, where you're placing it and what what the story you want to tell is. But Perhaps you could just riff on some ideas of how you might approach if I said, okay, I'm a museum, here's a Grecian urn, do your thing, Steve. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can go to plenty of museums and look at loads of urns if you want to. God, some of them just look like crockery shops, don't they? A row after row of, of um, glorious objects. I mean, they are delightful, um, intriguing, sometimes um Enigmatic, sometimes a little bit smutty, dare I say. Um, so there's certainly scope for. Um, oh, hang on, smutty. hang on. Smutty. <laughs> a, 
earned, smutty? What do you mean? Smutty is the wrong word. <laughs> Some of them are quite graphic, perhaps, in the context of, of what you see on, on, on them, to our eyes at least. Um, so there's, there's often some um, eyebrow-raising scenes on some of those urns, which visitors don't necessarily pick up on unless they're really closely looking. Sometimes it's quite funny to put a, um, an urn like that on display and there's a graphic depiction of two people while well, they're really rather enjoying themselves um, and just wait for the school teacher to realise that what is on that pot before you <laughs> before they show it to, the, to their kids. Um, we normally place those on slightly higher shelves, I, I would say. Um, but the, the ode to Grecian urns, um, for example, we used it in, because um, Keats um, writes it, I think I'm right in saying, inspired in the British Museum, and he's going to the, to the, to look at those items and also the Parthenon sculptures, many people know as the, the Elgin marbles. Um, so I used Ode to Grecian Urn actually in, an, um, we were once, we were doing an audio guide for the Parthenon sculptures at the British Museum. So we used that in, the, in there. Um, of course, that's creating a link then between what uh, a, a series of reliefs that would have once been on a building, um, big architectural, now of course colour removed, but um, um, flat up against the wall, and linking that through poetry that's playing into your ears to a pot, to a piece of urn that's on display a few galleries away. That's one of the great things about museums is making connections between those. I think you use the word context, trying to set those in context. It can be quite hard. You know, you're in a museum in Bloomsbury looking at a huge slab of stone and a pot in a, in a display case. What do those actually mean? How can I take a visitor back to Athenian society and uh, describe what they are? In, in this case, we used audio. Um, but there's loads of other ways in. You know, the British Museum's done loads and around the world. Um, uh, Greek objects are interpreted in all sorts of exciting ways. Um, uh, in particular at the Acropolis Museum in Athens, where there's a full recreation of the entire um, uh, Parthenon frieze. And they're doing great work. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, um, you touch on the Elgin marbles, which um, have had their moments of controversy. Um, and so who do, whose heritage are the Elgin marbles? The, the, are they the British or the Greeks? Um, um, could you touch a little bit on, on those kinds of controversies? Oh. I mean, day one at the British Museum, uh, uh, I think it's quite made quite clear to you that you have no comment on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's a, it's obviously it's a huge issue that um, has run for generations and is likely to run for more as, uh, as well. We are now in a, and I um, have grappled with that subject for a long time. And the whole nature of what a museum is, and the fact that these institutions, which are as a result of the colonial project, have taken a lot of things from around the world and brought them back to uh, most of the time to, to, to Western Europe. Um, we now have a, are in a place where we understand more about that story and are 
becoming more confident in telling the story of how objects came to be in the collections of Western Europe um, and all over the world. We have found it difficult, the sector has found it difficult in the last few generations to find a solution, looking for a solution to that problem. And I think it's now only just in a place where it can have a robust, com robust conversation about that and a meaningful conversation at long last about that. And it's taking the work of some, uh, I'm not going to say pioneering, brave museums to challenge the status quo of that object is ours and therefore it must stay in our care forever. Um, so museums have begun the process of returning objects back to where they once came from. Um, to some, that's seen as the thin end of the wedge. That, well, goodness, if you hand one thing back, probably after the, the, the everything before long and the museums will be empty. Well, that's not really a valid argument for not doing, for not restoring some objects to, to where they once were. Um, in fact, engaging people from around the world with our collections in a new and um, open and discursive way is actually a really powerful thing. And interpretation can play its part by continuing to keep the stories of how the objects came to be here and what they mean to a range of different people. They can keep that debate going. And I think we need to do even more to keep to keep pushing that to so that people understand when they see a Grecian urn in Bloomsbury, why it's there and how it got there. Um, there's some really interesting work going on now around the world, uh, particularly uh, objects being uh, returned to Australia, to the communities from which they were taken. Um, and that's yielding some really positive results. And I think we need to build on that and do more of it. The specific case of the Parthenon sculptures is just going to go and go and go. I think it's so high profile. It's linked to the very idea of the British Museum. It, it has got a, um, there's a whole lot of legal precedents tied up in it, but also it's an emotional, really emotional point for so many in the heritage sector and, uh, in the UK and in Greece. Um, what the solution to it is, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pleased that we're having an open and thoughtful and considered debate about it rather than um, necessary just political point scoring at the moment. There appears to be some good, solid thinking going on. And if that translates into good, solid, solid action, then even better. I'm I'm really um, uh, kind of touched by what you've just um, kind of expressed because actually I think it it's linked to in a way the history of the heritage sector the heritage of the heritage sector if you like um, you know we go back to you know when I was a child many years ago and and previous to that where um, uh, and and it kind of reflects society and culture in that you know we are the ex experts and we will tell you what to think about something and here's a little card for you to think about um, and that's it the, that's the end of it. Um, 
And uh, but actually, what you're describing now is a much more different, flattened um, landscape, I suppose, where there's collaboration between museums, between countries and nations, between heritages, um, and there's a lively debate around what is heritage. Um, and and actually, you're also engaging and bringing in um, the public, um, and uh, uh, and 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 that becomes it opens up much more. Um, interesting discussions and um, thought processes uh, as well, because of course um, um, this is a much bigger debate as to you know what is history and and whose story is it and um, and all that. And so actually, you know, um, the 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 debate about these objects. You know, you go into the British Museum, you're looking at the Elgin Marbles and the Grecian Urn, or um, you're in Australia and you're looking at a community's heritage. And actually knowing all this means that you have a deeper and broader appreciation of what you're looking at because it connects with my personal history of being a subject of the empire, my ancestors being a subject of the empire. Mm -hmm. um, And suddenly you're looking at a kaleidoscope, um, a tapestry, um, and not just one little thread or one little bead in it. That's very true. We've moved away, I think, from the idea of the museum acting in quite a didactic sense of teaching the public, you know, um, come in, visitor, I'm going to teach you what you need to know now and then go away again. Some (laughs) heritage institutions still do see that as their role. For a while then, we shifted to an idea of, well, we've got to set everything in context. We need to tell all the stories we possibly can about these these, um, objects. Well, there's only so much we can do. There's only so much context we can explore. And the museum for i mean museums in in general for a while tried to take this take the idea of neutrality well it's not our object and it's not your object so let's just talk about it in awfully polite terms and think about something meaningful that comes out of it which i suppose was quite well meaning um but actually we realized that, that museums are not neutral museums are a product of the colonial era um the things that they have have come to be there in a way that we might not necessarily agree with now, but they are there. And so let's think about what we do about that and how we interpret them. And let's include more people in that storytelling process. We call it participatory practice. So we it's not that um, I, as representative of the museum, get to tell you what, what um, uh, uh, the interpretation of this object is. But actually, we talk to people who um, live with and use and create these objects all the time and get them to tell us what it means or we don't just get them to tell us about it we get them to write it on the wall or we get them to be a part of how of making an exhibition we're, we're, we're playing around with terms at the moment like co-creation or co-curation where we invite someone who is not a member of the museum community to come and be curator with us and it's there's loads of different ways it's happening, uh, particularly with communities who are not necessarily represent have not re- necessarily been majority represented within the museum sector or within uh, museum visitorship. So it's also driving audiences to come to museums as well. I'm thinking of um, there's some really good work going at the People's History Museum in Manchester, where they uh, it's a museum of um, the the Museum of Ideas That Are Worth Fighting For. Of course, Manchester, where it's based, is um, 
some might say the home of uh, protest and radical thought in the UK. Others might disagree, uh, but it is um, a natural place for it. And they have brought together groups of people to look at a subject, say, for example, women's suffrage or um, queer identity and representation or disability in society and asking representatives of those groups of people to come and play the role of curator with the museum so that when you go visit it, visit an exhibition, um, you see their voice, their words on the wall. And also those communities then feel like they want to go to the museum to see that story. And oh, wow. so the idea being that society becomes much more joined together and inclusive. This is something we've been playing with for about 10, 15 years or so as an idea in museums. It's been growing slowly, slowly, slowly. And it's, at the moment, it's just getting bigger and bigger. And I think it's something that really ought to be celebrated. Some are resistant to it, saying, but well, th there's a challenge to the authority of the museum. And, uh, and that there's, that this needs to be very carefully managed and, um, kept in a, you know, in a box. Yes, you can have your say, but I will decide where it goes on the wall. Um, and we're just ex exploring a whole range of different ways of what participatory practice might mean. And I think you'll see more and more of it in museums in, uh, in years to come. And I think it's going to be a force for the good. That's wonderful. Um, and actually, that's just reminded me um, that I have, um, um, I'm, I'm sort of participating in one of of those things um so the new um, queer britain museum um the lgbtq plus museum um they approached me and asked me to tell their my, my story um so they uh, i went down uh, uh, um uh, it was in in london a couple of years ago and they interviewed me and filmed me um and so that has been captured for their digital archive which i was really very excited and honored uh, to be um, part of um but it was also a little bit intimidating because you realize you know these words that I am speaking will be you know, archived for yeah. you know, heritage um, yeah. going forward. Um, and well, uh, that's great that that somebody you know this year or next year or in a hundred years might go back and listen to your interview or transcribe it or it'll end up in a piece of research or an exhibition or how oh, brilliant! Oh, yes, well done for being involved with it. Thank you. It's very exciting. And then off my own bat, um, uh, uh, um, I I've got. Um, uh, some Cheong Sams, which are these ch the Chinese uh, traditional dress um, that um, belong to my grandmother and my mother and me. And um, these days, I don't really have much occasion to wear these dresses. <laughs> and um, so my my mother handed them to me, um, and I and I, I've kept them. But because I've had to move house um, to a smaller place, I don't have as much storage space, and I just couldn't bear the thought of giving them away or. To Oxfam or whatever and throwing them away. So I approached the Fashion and Textile Museum in London um, and said, do you want them? And they said, well, unfortunately, you know, our, we've, we've got plenty um, and we're not taking new donations. But through their recommendation and referrals and whatever, they, um, uh, the Oriental Museum, as, which is part of the uh, Durham University, um, have, have taken them. So I am really, really excited and pleased that Okay, they may be sitting in whatever stacks or whatever, but at least um, they're preserved. Um, and as and when they need the, to bring them out for an exhibition, there will be people in the future who will see these these dresses. Yeah, um, and good. it was really exciting because because I had I had the the three generations. That was something that was um, that they were interested in. Um, 
there, isn't there? There's your your story, yes. <laughs> but there's a which makes those objects which are, you know, to on one hand, someone they, they are just some textiles in a drawer in Durham, being very carefully cared for, I imagine. Um, but on another hand, on the, on the other hand, they are the physical embodiment of a three generation story, um, which your story is a very powerful story, um, and so that's uh, that's 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 really pleasing to know that it's being preserved, um, because your legacy will live beyond just um, some garments in a, a museum collection. Your novels and podcasts and all sorts will be part of your collection you leave for the world, young man. But it's nice that you leave a, a physical a physical remnant. Well, um, we are a nation of collectors and hoarders. Just look at the TV schedules. There's so many programs about antiques and collecting antiques and selling antiques and um, and the value. Of course, we're British, so we care about the value of all sorts of things, the price of antiques. Um, but we are a nation, uh, to a certain extent, um, crazy about old stuff. And uh, we've got loads of it. And that's plenty of it, yes, I was going to say. Um, so I'd like to circle back to this um, uh, thing that we touched on a bit earlier around collaborative working. Um, as a writer, um, I'm usually just writing by myself in in, a, in my little room. But um, as a writer in the museum world, uh, you work collaboratively with your colleagues. Um, could you just share some of your experience around that and, and how collaboration and diversity, which we touched on, um, you know, impact on um, on, on an exhibition and the, the sector generally? Well, it is true that I do spend a fair bit of time on my own at my desk, but I um, but it's doing detailed work, writing either an interpretation plan or writing interpretive copy. But um, you're right. Yeah, collaboration is really what it's all about. Um, there's no right or wrong way of creating interpretation but i find it does work best when there is dialogue going on um normally together um of course with uh, social distancing we've had to do more and more of it by looking into our computer screens at each other on uh, on group calls um but bringing people together especially people who've got a, come from a range of disciplines um a range of backgrounds a range of experiences. Um, say if I was doing it in a uh, a museum, I'd like to pull in the curator of the subject, who you know, the, maybe the, the subject specialist, a scientist or historian or who it might be. But I want to bring in somebody from the front of house who understands the visitors. I want to bring in uh, somebody from the learning or the education team, um, somebody who understands the collection and the heritage assets and how they need to be cared for and conserved. Uh, people who um, people who hold the, the purse strings, people who are going to find us some money to pay for all of it. If you put if you put those people in a room together, they uh, and ask them the right questions, they start doing interpretation straight away, and it's uh, I think it's a really rewarding part of it. I say there's four S's that you need for um, successful interpretation planning. The first one is social interaction, having a group of people. Uh, who can bounce off one another, maybe with some specific questions you want to ask them, but sometimes just putting an idea out there and a bit like how you arrange a podcast, think of a few questions and have, then have a bit of a chat and see what comes out of it. You know? um, so uh, certainly it's a social activity. The second S is space, and it's important to make some space for it. And I think I mean, creatives in all sorts of, uh, of disciplines will understand this by 
setting aside a special place to go to to work um, can help to focus the mind. They might just book a room for an afternoon uh, and sit around a table. But I've done it, you know, if you're, if you're doing, if you're creating heritage interpretation about, say, an archaeological site, let's go and stand on there. I was doing uh, a project for a historic play park and we had our interpretation planning meeting one day on the miniature train that goes around the site. And we sat there, me and a few trustees, waving at people as we were going around, talking about audience profile and learning outcomes and all the things we wanted to achieve. And it really um, helped us to, to, to live the interpretation we wanted to create. Um, the fourth one, fourth S, is sustenance. Because if you're going to spend a fair bit of time together as a group of people collaborating, um, you do need feeding and watering. And so interpretation planning gets through a fair share of biscuits. Um, uh, not too many, because you don't want S to stand for sugar crash, but um, keeping people fed and watered is really important. Um, and also, I mean, we're going to create loads of ideas, we're going to talk and talk and talk, and capturing it in my fourth S, which is stationary. And this means you can have some exciting sort of sticky notes or dinosaur stickers or something, but um, just to keep it a bit sort of light <laughs> uh, and entertained, to capture some of that collaborative chat that you have and to harness it. So by the end of one of these sessions, normally you've got a table that's just full of sticky notes and bits of card and coloured things that we've cut out and stuck down and pictures that we've cut out of magazines and done some storyboarding with. Um, I will then take a lot of that away and uh, and write up whatever it is that we've discussed. But it is by bringing these people together and having uh, structured conversations that we can create great interpretation. And like I say, I don't think that's just unique to heritage interpretation. I think a lot of creative people work in that way. I'm sure choreographers and and um, uh, textile workers and all sorts bring people together to have a conversation and then go away and do some of the, the detailed work afterwards. And I find it's just, just really um, fulfilling work to do, especially if you're then doing something like co-creation by bringing in more representative people from your audience or from a particular subject that you're working with to help inform that. The more minds, the better. Yeah. I, I love that because I think in that again, traditionally, um, in in all kinds of organizations, corporate um or charities or, or whatever, whichever sector you're working in, um, there is a sense of, well, we we in who wear the suits, um, uh, we are the ones who make the decision. Um and um, I love the fact that you're thinking, well, we'll bring in the front of house, we'll bring in um, all these different people whom um, you, you would never necessarily think, oh, well, they, they've got something to contribute. Um, but actually getting a 360 degrees sort of view or, you know, even more than that, kind of, you know, um, all kinds of perspectives and um, can uh, actually sparks up all, um, a different way and a different approach that um, makes sense. That's not to say it's easy, necessarily, and there's sometimes disagreement and quite vocal disagreement. Um, but that's OK, because we're all friends at the start of the process and we will all be friends at the end of it. Um, so sometimes it's about consensus building or finding areas where our ideas overlap um, or some, a little bit of negotiation um, in the interpretation role. I often find myself in the middle. Um, sometimes mediating between different factions or different um, pressures. Say, for example, there's a curator of, okay, let's say Grecian urns, who has the world's largest collection of Grecian urns and wants to celebrate that collection, so let's get them all out. All 
seven and a half thousand of them. Let's have them all out on display at once. And the designer is saying, um, could we choose six, maybe? If you had to choose six, would you? I couldn't possibly just choose six. I've got to have all of them. Uh, well, maybe we go to eight. I'm not sure. So um, that's just a, a that's a, a, a face off. It's never going to find a solution. Interpretation can come to that conversation and say, okay, I'm going to play the role of the visitor now. If you show me 7,000 of them, um, I'm just not going to be able to take all of them in. As beautiful as they all are, um, they'll just be charming wallpaper. Um, if you show me six and they're spotlit, uh, that would look quite dramatic. But do I, can you guarantee we're going to get a sense of what's important about these objects? That before we decide on how many we're going to get out, let's decide why we are getting the pots out. Let's look at who the audience is that comes in through the door. What do they know about Grecian urns already? And what do they not know? What do they like or dislike about them? What are their preconceptions or misconceptions? Let's go and ask them. Let's decide what it is we want them to understand or appreciate or value or do as a result of looking at this. And once we've asked ourselves those questions, let's then go back and look at how many we're going to get out. Because the chances are that once we've thought through those, we'll have a deeper understanding of what it is we want to achieve, who it's for, and, and, and how uh, that'll help inform how we're going to deliver it. Yes, so what you're saying is part of the process um, of bringing all these people together is um, asking good questions. Um, and yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and I don't really pretend to know the answers to all of those questions. In fact, in the book, each chapter just finishes with a list of questions that you might want to now go and ask yourself as part of your, of your discussion. And each question probably leads to even more questions. So it's a dis it is a discursive process. That's what I enjoy about it. Um, we can ramble and ramble sometimes, though, so it's important. To, a bit of project management is important as well to say, OK, by the end of the month, we need to have decided what we're, what we're doing on this. But, so but it can be enormously fun. What I'm, what I'm picking up from you is that you have this very light, humor, humorous, playful side uh, that is creative um, and a little bit silly, you know, going around the tr on the trains and so on. But actually, yeah. there's a purpose to it, because what you're doing is... Um, is encouraging people to think in a creative way to, to work together collaboratively. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the dinosaur stickers and whatever. And, and again, as someone who might be very traditional um, in their sort of, oh, I'm, I'm never going to play with dinosaur stickers. But, but what you're doing is it's, it's not chaotic, it's structured. So you're facilitating these conversations, um, asking these questions, getting people to collaborate um, uh, within a, you know, a, a, a sensible project managed time frame. Um, and so yeah. what looks well, potentially chaotic chaotic um isn't yeah it's about being a safe pair of hands really you know i understand the questions that we're going to ask um but we'll try and make it as enjoyable and engaged as engaging as possible and that was think quite requires some planning on on our part i was thinking of one time we did some consultation up on hadrian's wall uh, uh in northumberland um and we it was uh, an english heritage site and the intention was to um, make just one of the forts that runs, you know, there's a fort every mile along Hadrian's Wall. Mm, maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe it's a fort every so often along Hadrian's Wall. Um, I'm not a Roman historian, sorry. Um, apologies to those who know more about it than I do. Um, but one of these forts, uh, the intention was to turn it into a family friendly site, a gateway that people, 
families could come to and then go off and explore the rest of the war. Um, and so we took a whole load of families there. We invited them to come along. We, um, we gave them a small uh, incentive for coming along. They had a cash incentive. They got into the site free for the day. We gave them lunch and we um, pulled them all together uh had a load of conversations whilst they were having lunch they were scribbling answers to questions on our paper tablecloth and they all went off with little booklets and explored the site and they wrote down what they liked and didn't like and they all came back paraded the kids and the parents out and the kids were in one room and they uh we recreated um hadrian's wall out of um wallpaper printed wallpaper with bricks on it down one side of the room and uh the kids got to draw on the wall graffiti the wall with ideas they thought the site should that you should have at the site to make it more family friendly whilst in another room we took the parents away and asked them some slightly more serious questions but we sort of managed to probe what what would make a good visit there and um what they liked and disliked about the current uh exhibition and also showed them some ideas about what we might be putting there in the future. Um, and the result of that was I write it all up and present it back to English Heritage. Yeah, this is what families think. And they have now taken um, uh, their ideas and developed them. And it is now a flagship family friendly site on Hadrian's Wall. But there was a there was a time, a moment on a very cold February Sunday morning when I found myself sat in a lay by on the way up to Hadrian's Wall at about seven in the morning, thinking, wow, this is not a glamorous lifestyle. <laughs> Harry, I think, and I had sort of a hundred sandwiches in the back to take for lunch for, for um, families. Um, on a very soggy, very windy Northumberland. Why we did it in February, I'm not entirely sure. Um, so it takes a bit of work and um, thinking about to, to get there, but to have their voice included in the process was really valuable and it's made the resulting interpretation scheme that they've put there um, all the better I think. That is such a wonderful story and um, must be very satisfying to have that outcome um, despite the cold and sogginess and um, hundred sandwiches. <laughs> yeah it's worth it in the end. But also, that... I could just be sat behind a desk doing something boring all day and I'm not. I was <laughs> slugging across Hadrian's Wall at seven in the morning on a Sunday so <laughs> Fantastic. And to be paid for that. That's wonderful. Actually, that's quite a good place to, for us to, to, to wrap up. Um, so now, if people want to find out more about you and your book, where should they go? So my website is steveslack.co.uk. And the book is called Interpreting Heritage. And it's published by Routledge. So you can just search for the book. Um, and uh, it has been written in a way that is hopefully not just for people who work in the heritage sector but if you're interested in heritage uh, and how we tell stories in the heritage sector then it's been written in a way that should hopefully be engaging and you also have quite a fun instagram feed what's your handle there oh yeah on instagram uh, museum of steve um, which is in normal times sort of the, the museums the pictures of the museums that i'm going to and the objects that i'm coming across and i post an object of the week on there uh, every week so something maybe interesting maybe poignant maybe uh, relevant to the news cycle or maybe just a bit incongruous working and they're post on there as well wonderful steve slack thank you very much my creative conversation today was with steve slack
There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. You can go there using the bit.ly short link, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. Or you can go to the Tiger Spirit blog, which is at tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to Creative Conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast, please do share it with your friends wherever you share stuff. Or you can subscribe to the show or leave us a lovely review on anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify, and you can find this podcast on Spotify by searching for Creative Conversations and my surname, Ui, O-O-I. All this will help more people hear about the show. The Creative Conversations podcast is produced by tigerspirit.co.uk. The podcast web link, again, is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash creative conversations hyphen podcast. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening and see you next time.